Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Jill Messino, your host, and today I'll be speaking with Tara Zara about her new book, Against the World, Anti-Globalism and Mass Politics Between the World Wars, which was published in January 2023 with Norton & Company. Welcome, Tara. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. So just a little background on Dr. Zara before we begin. She is Homer J. Livingston Professor of History at the University of Chicago and Roman Family Director of the Neubauer Collegium for Culture and Society. Her previous books include The Great Departure, Mass Migration and the Making of the Free World, which was published with Norton in 2016, The Lost Children, Reconstructing Europe's Families After World War II, which was published with Harvard University Press in 2011, and Kidnapped Souls, National Indifference and the Battle for Children in the Bohemian Lands, which was published with Cornell University Press in 2008. Dr. Zara has also received Guggenheim and MacArthur Fellowships and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So Tara, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, I would say that this book is the most uh, presentist book I've ever written in the sense that it was really directly inspired by what was going on in the world um, at the time that I began thinking about it. I had already been writing and thinking about migration for a long time. And um, in the last book that I wrote in in um, The Great Departure, one of the themes that kept coming up was the ways in which anxieties about emigration, people leaving their countries, were tied up in a broader debate about globalization and its consequences. So around the time that I finished that book, uh, it was 2016, and Donald Trump had just been elected. The vote for Brexit had just taken place. Um, There were populist regimes on the rise everywhere, promoting anti-migrant platforms. uh, And All of that really just got me thinking about the interwar period in a different way. Um, 
So I started to think about the ways in which the mass political movements of the interwar period were themselves in some ways responses to the first great wave of globalization before the First World War. And um, that was the beginning. Yeah. And of course, while reading the book, I saw a lot of parallels with what's happening today uh, around the world. Okay, I'd like to start with definitions because, you know, your book is about globalism and anti-globalism, but you note that these were not the terms people would have used at the time to describe these processes and perspectives. So first, how do you understand globalism and anti-globalism? And how did your subjects uh, that you feature in the book understand it? So what language or terminology would they have used to express these processes and perspectives? Right. I, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, in part because um, globalism and anti-globalism can seem like catch-all terms. Um, and to some extent, they, in my mind, they do encompass quite a lot, um, both forms of political internationalism, as well as uh, participation in the global economy and its consequences. Um, so those are, those are, you know, two of the main kinds of movements that I'm bringing together in the book. Um, but it's true that at the time, people would not have used those terms. They also wouldn't have used the term globalization. Um, so one of the kind of challenges of writing this book is that you can't really just go to an archive and say, like, give me the globalization files, please, because that's uh, not what exists. Um, so I had to kind of figure out what, what was the language of the time that people were using to talk about these processes um, or aspirations. Um, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of the book centers around movements for greater autarky or self-sufficiency. So a desire to uh, produce more of uh, a state's essential goods within its own borders. Um, but there were also, of course, um, really intense discussions around migration in this period, around free trade and protectionism, um, and around the rise of international organizations and internationalism. So all of those, um, in, in doing the research for this book, I kind of was thinking about all of those different discussions that were taking place uh, between the two world wars. Yeah, and one of the things I really appreciated about your book was that these discussions are happening on multiple levels, uh, among various people, sometimes uh, among people you wouldn't expect to have these discussions. And also you explore uh, globalism and deglobalism from different vantage points and perspectives. So at the grassroots level, from the perspective of high politics, uh, at the local, regional, national, and international level. And so can you tell us a bit about your cast of characters and how you chose them? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it was really a gradual process of discovery. I knew from the beginning that I really wanted this, at least in part, to be about the voices of, you know, unknown people, uh, from farmers to housewives to small business owners uh, to migrants themselves who were embroiled in these discussions and debates or experiencing the consequences of either globalization or anti-globalism. So I was looking for those voices, um, particularly women, actually, because it's very interesting how in, you know, thinking about recent 
historical trends or historiography, there's been a big shift toward global history and toward the history of capitalism, which includes globalization. But um, gender and women are very rarely integrated into that literature. So that was another critical goal of mine. Uh, But along the way, I also ended up writing about a lot of people who were very famous, um, including Henry Ford, Rosica Schwimmer, uh, you know, Mussolini and Hitler come into the story, Stefan Zweig. And, you know, some of these characters become very central to the story, um, while others appear in a chapter and then uh, disappear again. But the eclecticism of these individuals um, and their range of political positions in particular is really in some ways representative of the ways in which anti-globalism itself was really uh, politically promiscuous. And that's one of the major, I guess, points of the book is to show how um, anti-global movements were not simply you know, part of an inevitable path toward fascism, uh, but were rather very widespread on both the right and the left. Right. And also how there are people pushing against anti-globalism and are promoting and have faith in globalism, despite what's unfolding in the immediate post-war period. And on that, I want to discuss one of your subjects who appears numerous times in the book. So you begin chapter one in 1913 with Rosica Schwimmer, and you return to Schwimmer throughout the book. So what does Schwimmer's story illuminate about globalism and anti-globalism? And how does she offer insight into some of the blind spots of internationalism at that time? Yeah, I mean, Schwimmer was a real discovery for me because, um, first of all, when I I started reading about her, I was shocked that I didn't already know about her on some level as a a historian of East Central Europe. Um, And to me, she really embodied uh, the trajectory of this this kind of fall from from grace in a way, from you know the height of internationalism before the First World War to the end of her life when she actually dies stateless. Um, so she was a very committed internationalist, pacifist, feminist, uh, but also um, as was typical of of you know many of the internationalists in this book, the middle-class internationalists, a little bit blind to um, the sort of darker sides of globalization, sort of the victims, the, whether it's migrant workers or um, people whose businesses um, are destroyed by global competition, or, or really, I mean, I think the extent to which internationalism um, in this period was often a way of perpetuating imperial hierarchies. Um, So um, I use her story along with several others to both uh, illuminate the idealism of that moment, um, the hope that people placed in internationalism and in globalization when, you know, at a time when they thought, many people thought it would lead inevitably toward more progress and peace and prosperity um, to uh, an interwar time in which uh, those hopes had really been dashed. Uh, so her, I think her trajectory is, is really emblematic of that story. 
So I'd like to continue our discussion of women and move on to the next chapter, chapter two. And in this chapter, you tell the story of Raquel Pisotti. Um, and I found this really compelling because both Pisotti and Schwimmer embrace internationalism, but do so for different reasons. And of course, they also stem from different social and family backgrounds. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about Pisotti's story and specifically how it embodies what you refer to as the promises and perils of globalization. Absolutely. So that's a chapter where I really wanted to look at the at kind of two things at the same time. One is the ways in which migrant women like Pisotti and Jews, and Pisotti was also Jewish, uh, came to embody a lot of the um, perceived dangers of globalization in public debate. So at the level of um, the conversations that were happening among diplomats and experts and religious authorities and even family members, this uh, seemingly um, seemingly new and, and expanded mobility of women uh, was a real danger to the morals of uh, communities, to the stability of gender roles, um, and to the sanctity of, of the family. So there's that discussion going on. And then there's another discussion, um, which is a very old one and, you know, embedded in a lot of anti-Semitic tropes about Jews as emblems of cosmopolitanism and globalism and global finance. So Raquel Pasodi is a young, very young woman who ends up fleeing her home in uh, the Russian Pale of Settlement, uh, Orthodox family, in order to uh, find her fortune and her freedom in the United States. Um, and she's really actually explicitly trying to escape an arranged marriage. That's a pretty common story that I came across a lot, um, the number of people who were emigrating in order not to make a family, but to get away from a family. Um, and that fascinated me. But she and she she goes into this um, adventure with a lot of hope, I think, um, and an ambition for her future. But of course, ends up um, along with millions of other immigrant workers um, embroiled in the uh, textile industry in New York City, where the conditions of, of life and work were really far from golden, if that makes sense. So um, she ultimately becomes a labor activist, a very famous um, labor activist named Rose Pesota. She changes her name and um, becomes a really um, important labor leader and espouses a, another form of internationalism in the form of um, international socialism um, and is very successful in bringing women together, immigrant women together in particular, to um, try to try to make changes in the ways in which um, migrant women were being exploited at the time. So in a way, her story is kind of the inverse of uh, Schwimmer's in that Schwimmer starts so optimistic and then ends feeling kind of hopeless, um, whereas Pesota, as she becomes, right, starts kind of in this situation where she feels hopeless and desperate, but ends up doing something very meaningful uh, for herself and her fellow workers. 
Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't quite thought of it in that way, but that's right. They're, they're inverses of each other on some level. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how globalism is affected by the First World War. So what happens to these global or internationalist ideas and aspirations, uh, both during but also in the immediate aftermath of the war? Right. So economists have for quite a long time thought about the time between the two world wars as an era of, of deglobalization. Whether or not that's the right term um, is hard to say, but what what is very clear is that the um, amount of, of trade going on globally as well as migration dramatically reduced um, in the immediate aftermath of the First World War and then, you know, kind of ticked up a little bit again in the late 20s and then completely collapsed during the Great Depression. Um, so initially, my plan was really to start the book in 1918. Um, then I realized that would be kind of misleading because, of course, um, anti-globalism uh, is something that uh, begins to come into force uh, with globalization itself. You can't really separate the two. So, um, so I decided to start the book instead in the period before the First World War in order to show how already there were these um, discontents with globalization brewing in the form of migration restrictions and uh, protectionism, protective tariffs, and so on and so forth. That said, the First World War is a really important turning point in this story. Um, first of all, the war itself really, um, it puts a stop to transatlantic migration. In particular, people can't really cross the ocean um, during the war in the way that they were before the war. Uh, states introduce passports as a security measure, and that's something that never goes away after the war, even though it was supposed to be temporary. And um, in particular, a, a kind of turning point in this story is the Allied naval blockade um, against the Central Powers, which basically restricted the supply of food and other essential goods to the Central Powers for uh, most of the war. And then that was um, remained in place after the war to force uh, Germany to accept the terms of the peace treaty. And um, you know, it's unclear to what extent the the naval blockade was really the cause of mass starvation, but um, or the you know the number of people who died as a result of the naval blockade. That's something that's still debated among historians. But what is undebatable is that Germans and Austrians at the time blamed the naval blockade for the death and starvation of hundreds of thousands of people. So the lesson they learned from that experience is that it was incredibly dangerous to rely on imports for basic supplies of food and necessities. Um, and that is a, you know, that's a lesson that's really <laughs> seared into their hungry bodies by the experience of the war and um, carries into the post-war period when you really have the rise uh, of these movements for greater self-sufficiency, particularly in food production. Um, at the same time that uh, states, you know, especially the United States, but also other states in Europe start to really restrict migration. So those are two huge, huge shifts really in the uh, extent of globalization and, and in ideas about globalization. 
Yeah, I was actually going to talk about hunger because that's the topic of your fourth chapter, which is entitled The Hunger Offensive, Vienna and Berlin, 1917. And uh, in this chapter, you look at state efforts to deal with this crisis, right? And also you examine the protests that erupted at the close of the war. So um, my question is, is how did the war serve as midwife to anti-globalism while also birthing new forms of globalism? Because... Of course, you talked about the blockade and you talked about, obviously, the difficulty securing food. But then there are also efforts after the war to ensure that these populations are provisioned and not just by states themselves. It happens on an international level. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Right. So, I mean, I've, I've already spoken a little bit about the ways in which the First World War uh, nourishes anti-global movements, but um, as you said, it also generates new forms of internationalism. And that was something I, you know, it took me a while to realize that inevitably I had to write a book about internationalism as well in order to write a book about anti-globalism. Because, of course, there are all sorts of ways in which new international initiatives and efforts um, come into being precisely actually to deal with the consequences of anti-globalism or to help the victims of anti-globalism, if that makes sense. So whether it's the, you know, American Relief Administration bringing food to hungry children, uh, the League of Nations, obviously, um, the uh, American Jewish uh, Joint Distribution Committee. There's a, a huge number of different kinds of efforts that um, aim to assist hungry people, stateless people, minorities, refugees, um, all of the you know many people who are affected by the post-war transformation. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at the early 20s versus the 1930s, a lot of the organizations in the 1920s, like the League, for example, they really hope to bring things back to the status quo of the pre-war period. So at first, the League of Nations really wanted to get rid of all those passports that had been created, for example. Um, they wanted to revive economic the kinds of economic relations that had existed before the war. But when the Great Depression comes along, and even already in the late 20s, they start to change their tune a little bit toward, reform. I would say, reforming um, the either the structures of the global economy or the ways in which um, international relations work. So standardizing the passport regime rather than eliminating it, for example. Um, and they, the, you know, in the economic and financial section of the league, uh, new ideas are begin to be promoted in the in the 1930s that really prefigure post World War II developments, um, including ideas about economic development and um, combating poverty that become more much more widespread after World War II. And one of the things uh, you stress is that some of these initiatives, they were not ideologically neutral, right? So especially the efforts uh, by the U.S. Uh, on behalf of populations in Central and Eastern Europe. And maybe you can just quickly discuss the ideological significance uh, of these efforts, that they weren't just simply altruistic humanitarian efforts. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, they presented themselves often as, as you know, humanitarian 
uh, efforts, and they did have some humanitarian goals. But really, this was a kind of this was liberal internationalism in the service of preventing Bolshevik internationalism. So the real fear um, after the First World War was that the Russian Revolution would spread throughout the rest of Europe. And the signs, you know, were ominous if you think about what happened in Hungary, where a Bolshevik regime briefly took power, um, the kind of revolutionary movements in Germany and in Austria, uh, and in Italy, for that matter, it was a period in which um, I think these fears were very, very real. So, um, so this was definitely not uh, disinterested internationalism. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the local efforts to combat hunger or to prevent food insecurity. So um, you discuss how in Vienna, Berlin, Leipzig, and Frankfurt, there were efforts to create urban gardens. Um, yeah, this begins really during the war itself. People um, are hungry and they go to, uh, you know, spontaneously, not surprisingly, great lengths in order to begin to produce their own food. So people are planting gardens in public parks. They're uh, trying to raise chickens or goats on their balconies. Uh, they're really just occupying land uh, throughout the city that, you know, is unoccupied and, and trying to use that land to cultivate food. Um, and that is really a mass movement that begins during the war. And then the flip side of that, I guess, would be the rural settlement movements, right, where uh, states are encouraging urbanites to move to rural areas, right? So, yeah. And, that's, and a, those... that's, that's the focus of a number of your chapters. So just talk as much as you want about those, because I found it really fascinating. And of course, you talk about them in the context of the U.S. as well. So, Yeah. And I would say that, you know, the, the moment that I really decided that there was a book in this was when I came across the materials about the Austrian settlement movement, because it was, uh, again, a real surprise to me, um, both that these movements existed and how they were tied to um, these ambitions for greater self-sufficiency, both at the level of the individual and the nation. So the idea here was really to redistribute the population from urban areas uh, where food insecurity was rampant to um, more rural areas. And that was going to supposedly have several purposes at once. On the one hand, um, all of these unemployed workers would have something to do and they would be able to provide for their families. At least that was the idea. Um, so there was a kind of idea of basically homesteading for um for self-provisioning. Uh, at the same time, it, uh, at least in Central Europe and in some other contexts, uh, the goal, Italy, for example, the goal was really to increase uh, total food production, to increase the amount of land that was under cultivation so that the nation could import less food. So um, that becomes a really big uh, priority of the state in Mussolini's Italy, where, uh, you know, there there's a huge movement to try and drain swamplands, for example, and um, turn all of that land into uh, cultivated land that's going to produce wheat and and food for the people. Um, and in, it's linked to anti-globalism in another way as well, which is that these kinds of 
settlements, these rural settlements, are also supposed to respond to the um, the closing of the world's borders, and particularly the closing of American borders. So, before the First World War, you know, um, the possibility of migrating across the Atlantic was really almost a safety valve for countries like Italy and Poland that were overpopulated um, in the sense that they, you know, there was not enough food and there were not enough jobs to go around. People would emigrate. After the First World War, that was no longer really a possibility on a mass scale because of American migration restrictions. And so, you know, states were really struggling to figure out how to support um, these populations who in the past might have emigrated. And settlements, these rural settlements where people are going to grow their own food become imagined, come to be imagined as a solution to that problem as well. Yeah. And they're imagined as these idealized kind of egalitarian communities, right? But one of the things you stress is they were characterized by inequalities and also exclusions. So how did these play out? You're talking about the settlements themselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that this idea of homesteading also becomes really uh, popular in the United States during the Great Depression. And there, it's not so much about autarky, because the U.S. is really unique um, in this time period, in that it actually does produce enough food to feed its population. There, it is more seen, imagined as a solution to mass worker unemployment, you know, send people back to the land where they can grow their own food and uh, stay off the dole. Um, However, so the um, FDR and the New Deal actually uh, have a homesteading um, agency and they, the government supports these settlements. But for example, there were never settlements that were available to Black Americans, um, to w- even though there was great interest, uh, and there were, you know, there was also just kind of all of the, all of the xenophobic anxieties that you might associate with this period. Like there was one um, quite famous settlement in New Jersey that was designed for called Jersey Homesteads. It was designed for. Jewish textile workers um, and the amount of anti-Semitism that um, those settlers faced is perhaps not surprising, but um, really extraordinary. Yeah. And of course, you see that in some of the settlements in Austria, right? Populations being pushed out. And um, you also mentioned how these settlements relied on unpaid female labor, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting to think about um, who is the self when in 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 this ideal of self-sufficiency. Right. And the self is really it's really a family unit that they're talking about. And in order for, you know, anyone to make this kind of family farm, self-provisioning, homesteading ideal work to the extent that it did work, you basically needed the full-time labor of women and often children as well. And I think for some of these anti-globalists, on, particularly on the right, that was part of the point. <laughs> if there had been great anxiety about the mobility of women 
before the First World War. This was really the opposite of that. This was rooting women and families in the land, um, taking them out of the paid workforce um, and kind of anchoring people, um, anchoring people on these homesteads. Uh, But that labor of women was not often accounted for when people were talking and thinking about the cost of these settlements. Um, right. And and some of these homesteads, right, were promoted by the left. So they weren't necessarily promoting egalitarianism with respect to opportunities between, you know, men and women. It was kind of like, okay, you're going to be assigned traditional roles. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to talk about uh, another process which uh, results in anti-globalism, which is uh, diseases. And of course, when I was reading this, this is the topic of chapter five. I couldn't help thinking about COVID. Um, And I'm sure it must have been really eerie writing this chapter because I'm guessing you did during that time. But how does disease serve as an engine for anti-globalism? Right. So, I mean, I should say, first of all, that this is another example of um, the past being shaped by the present, because I didn't even have in mind a plan to write about disease until March of 2020. Um, And it was literally in March of 2020 that I started thinking about as I was, you know, sitting in (laughs) COVID isolation. I mean, not, not that I had COVID myself, but, you know, in, at home um, thinking about the Spanish flu, right. As the last major global pandemic, which happened to coincide with this um, anti-global turn. So then my question was, well, to what extent were the two things actually linked? To what extent did the Spanish flu, this global pandemic, actually increase or shape or drive um, this anti-global turn that I was writing about? Um, And it wasn't hard in kind of doing this research to find a lot of examples. Um, First of all, that the pandemic itself was seen as a, at the time as a consequence of globalization, that, you know, it was because of globalization that the flu spread literally within weeks across the world, right? And, um, and and specifically because of the global nature of the First World War. So soldiers who were being transported home uh, brought the flu with them. So there's that link immediately. Um, and then the second way that these... Um, that disease becomes tied to to anti-global movements is that the spread of disease, including the flu, but also other diseases like typhus and the plague um, is immediately blamed on immigrants and foreigners, uh, not just because they're traveling across borders. um, And when people travel across borders, germs do as well, but because um, migrant groups were stigmatized as, um, as supposedly being, uh, you know, dirty or not having the standards of hygiene um, that um, that were needed at the time, and so on and so forth, and that goes back well before the First World War to um, kind of uh, panics around cholera and the plague and typhus, but it it resurfaces not surprisingly during the First World War, where you see a lot of um, xenophobic and racist reporting about the ways in which migrants were contributing to the spread of of disease. 
Right. And then obviously creating impediments through passports and border controls and the like to keep certain migrants from moving from one place to another. I'd like to return to the immediate post-war period, namely the Paris Peace Treaties of 1919, and how you really see the seeds of anti-globalism being planted in these peace treaties. So maybe you can elaborate on this, and you know, maybe it wasn't inevitable that anti-globalism would emerge had it been for a different set of treaties. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, a great, that's a great way of putting it. I... I, uh, this was another instance where I felt like I, I was looking back on a period and even on documents that I'd seen before and thought about before, but suddenly saw them in a very new light. And I was really struck when I looked at the debates and negotiations around the peace treaties at the end of the war, the extent to which the, the losers of the war, in particular Germany, Austria, and Hungary, were arguing that the terms of the peace treaty basically were shutting them out of the global economy or making it impossible for them to survive into the future because they were being cut off from their supplies of food or natural resources. So um, that's really powerful in all three cases. And in Germany, there's indignation about the loss of colonies, of course, but also the claim is that the terms of the peace treaty really are trying to knock Germany out as a global competitor to um, the allies in terms of um, industrial production and its ability to operate globally um, in the economy. And then in in Austria and Hungary, it's really more about um, the viability of these rump states, whether, you know, Austria deprived of its hinterland um, could actually survive as a state if it could feed its people. Um, And the same kinds of concerns are, are raised in Hungary as well. Right. And then you discuss how with the emergence of passports, people can't be as mobile as they had been. So you use the the quote from Joseph Roth's uh, novel, uh, The Emperor's Tomb, no chestnut without a visa. Right. Yeah. And so whereas, you know, the the pre-war period had been this era of mobility. Now people were shuttered. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. The gates were really closed. And again, this is um it, it all gets tied together because the fact that, as I mentioned before, the fact that people can't move um, means they have to find employment at home and they have to be fed at home and they have to there has to be, um, you know, some kind of support for them. So it's uh, it's a really challenging moment. And and then, you know, if you think about Austria and Hungary, which lose, you know, states that lose their empire at the same time that migration is being cut off, all of the states around them are increasing tariffs uh, to make it even more challenging um, to trade with one another so that they can get the, the goods they need through, through trade. That becomes just increasingly difficult. Right. But as bad as it is in Europe, uh, Gandhi visits England in 1931 and tells, you know, uh, some of the workers uh, in Lancashire that it's actually worse in India. Right. And so one of the things I appreciated about your book is it it goes beyond Europe. It includes the U.S., but then it also looks at countries uh, outside of the West. Um, So maybe you can talk a little bit about deglobalism in these other contexts, but how they had different significance and aims? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 
India is a really particular and important case because it shows how a certain form of anti-globalism actually arose uh, in the context of anti-colonial nationalism. So there, you know, Gandhi's argument was that in order to be free of the exploitative economic and political structures of empire, that India uh, needed to become more self-sufficient. And for him, I mean, it wasn't just an economic or political project. It was also a moral and spiritual project. But he believed that the path toward um, greater self-sufficiency was uh was through the production of textiles, through spinning, um, and encouraged Indians to, you know, burn their foreign clothing, burn their foreign textiles, and commit to um, spinning their own cloth uh, and wearing only homespun cloth um, and boycotting foreign-produced goods. Um, And that was a very powerful movement. Um, And at one point... Gandhi visits Lancashire where, uh, you know, the hope is that this visit is going to persuade him to end the boycott because he's going to see the misery of the textile workers in Lancashire who are out of jobs or suffering because of the boycott of British textiles. But in fact, Gandhi actually goes there and urges the workers to boycott the very goods that they're producing because as he explains, you know, as miserable as you are, it's nothing compared to the poverty and misery in India. Um, And the other thing that's important about this movement is it shows how, first of all, again, the political diversity of these movements, there's no inevitable connection between anti-globalism and fascism, but also um, the ways in which, you know, for Gandhi at least, this kind of economic nationalism was in the service of a more universal, more genuine political internationalism. So he was all for uh, international collaboration and cooperation, especially among um, the uh, formerly colonized people. But uh, but he argued that this kind of internet, real internationalism was only possible if people were not stuck in the exploitative economic relationships of dependence um, that had been the the rule of the day under under empire, right, and then that becomes um, the perspective that also characterizes anti-colonial movements in the post-war period as well. Yeah, that's absolutely you, right. Which that's you chart right. uh, subsequently. So I'd like to continue on the topic of India, particularly as related to Tomas Bata, the founder of the Bata Shoe Company. Um, And as you demonstrate in the book, Bata had quite a novel approach to globalism during the interwar period. So can you tell us how Bata fits into your narrative? Yeah, I mean, one of the important, I think, um, I guess, important um, conclusions of this book is that all of this anti-globalism has a lot of unexpected consequences, um, including, in some cases, new forms of globalization and internationalism, which we already discussed. And Bata is a great example of that. Um, the Bata Shoe Company um, in interwar Czechoslovakia basically faces uh, a problem, which is that they, before the First World War, they had an empire to produce um, shoes for. Um, and then they produced shoes for the Austro-Hungarian army um, 
during the First World War. But with the creation of an independent Czechoslovakia, basically their market wasn't big enough. Um, there weren't an, enough people in Czechoslovakia to buy the amount of shoes that they were producing. On top of that, um, this was a time when there was huge anti-foreign sentiment, economic nationalism everywhere, and huge protective tariffs. So, you know, people were not so interested in buying shoes made in Czechoslovakia. Um, so Bata's solution was actually to lean into globalization. That is, instead of exporting shoes abroad, he exported factories and um, produced Bata shoes um, everywhere around the world. And it was truly became a global enterprise. Um, it was especially, uh, you know, deeply rooted in India, but also uh, Egypt, Palestine, Africa, Latin America. Bata really went global um, during the interwar period. And it's at the same time, it's sort of, it really is the exception that proved the, the rule because in doing so, um, it's not that, uh, you know, the Bata shoe company went to India and said, hey, buy Czechoslovak shoes. What they did was they tried to sell those shoes as local goods. So, you know, the advertising was buy Bata. It's, you know, produced locally by local workers. Um, so they adopted the rhetoric of localism and economic nationalism um, in order to essentially sell uh a, a foreign product. Um, and it, it's really one of the first examples of the multinational company as we know today. Right. We see that everywhere today. So I'd like to talk a little bit about autarky. And you mentioned this already, but in the third portion of your book, you focus on autarky with respect to Mussolini's Italy and Nazi Germany. And in the Italian context, it seemed that autarky was essentially ubiquitous, that you'd see it in numerous book titles and the titles of pamphlets. So uh, books about autarkic cooking, linguistic autarky, spiritual autarky, among other uh, topics. But then at the end of the chapter, you conclude that, quote, the fascist dream of achieving autarky through colonization and the agropontino ultimately ended where it began, in a malarial swamp, unquote. So what happens in Italy? Right. So as I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, these um, this ideal of achieving self-sufficiency um, in the production of food um, is is really uh, becomes powerfully uh, expressed in Mussolini's Italy, where it becomes a kind of state project. Um, and, you know, uh, the fascist regime basically has these showcase projects where they attempt to drain swampland in order to produce wheat, um, the famous battle for wheat. And it's it's clear that um, the battle for wheat is not simply a battle, uh, you know, to feed Italians or to find employment for them in an age uh, in which migration is no longer possible, but also um, directed toward the United States, which was um, one of the chief suppliers of wheat to Italy before the um, before the First World War. So hundreds of thousands of people of, of Italians were directed toward these um, these projects. They were called bonifica um, to reclaim land and to make it productive. But uh, in the process, uh, huge numbers died of malaria, um, and uh, the conditions of life in these 
settlements um, in the 30s was often really abysmal and um, unhappy. So I guess if you were to look at it from the perspective of the 21st century, those projects were successful to the extent that those towns that Mussolini built still exist. Um, and, and Italy did become, uh, did produce much more food, um, but the cost was very high in terms of human lives. And um, the ending of that chapter refers to the fact that at the end of the Second World War, basically, when um, after, after Mussolini's death, uh, the Nazis invaded uh, Italy and actually um, deliberately cultivated and released particularly um, malignant and malarial mosquitoes um, into those uh, reclaimed lands, um, resulting in, you know, the infection of hundreds of thousands of people. Definitely an unfortunate end for Italy and uh, a tragic end for many Italians. Uh, So I'd like to continue the discussion of autarky and move on to Nazi Germany, uh, where, uh, of course, autarky was a quintessential aspect of of the Nazi program. Um, And in your chapter, you note that the Nazis blended old with new, um, and in particular that they co-opted the pre-existing rural settlement movement. So can you talk a little bit about the ways uh, in which uh, the Nazi state blended old and new and how autarky was elaborated more generally in Germany? Yeah, so I mean, this um, ideal of rural settlement, as I as I mentioned before, definitely predated the Nazis. And if you want to go back to the whole um, ideal of allotment gardening and rural settlement, it was something that was um, promoted, again, both on the left and the right in the um, 1920s. Um, but increasingly, I would say this became a right-wing fantasy um, in the 1930s. And the Nazi rhetoric of um, blood and soil, blut and boden, was really in some ways directed against globalization. So the idea of rooting Germans in the soil where they were going to grow their own food for Germans um, was uh, really central to the Nazi program. And um, and it was very much directed against Jews who, um, as I mentioned earlier, were already before the 1930s, um, kind of seen in anti-Semitic circles as emblems of globalization and of globalization's evils. So um, it becomes a real centerpiece of of the Nazi program to um, try to reverse industrialization and resettle people in these these rural areas. Right. And as you know, part of this was also uh, related to promoting um, local businesses, right? Small businesses. So trying to encourage Germans to shop locally, uh, to not patronize large department stores, which were full of luxury items, which uh, were associated with cosmopolitanism and Jewish ownership. Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, one of the um, earliest, uh, you know, promises of the Nazis in its in its movement days was to get rid of uh, department stores and chain stores um, again, which were at the time associated with Jews. Um, uh, in order to protect local artisans and shopkeepers who were among the Nazis' greatest supporters. Um, 
Interestingly, once the Nazis came to power, they didn't really make good on that promise to the small business people or artisans. Um, they they carried through the anti-Semitic um, aspects of, of this plan, which is to say they um, expropriated department stores and chain stores and, and all other businesses and wealth from Jews. Um, but they didn't actually close those stores or businesses because it turned out in the context of the Great Depression um, that they were just too valuable as sources of employment for Germans. Right. And you note a lot of Germans were disappointed by this, the shopkeepers, because they had voted for Hitler for those very reasons, with the expectation that people would shop at their stores and not the department stores. I thought that was really interesting that people were writing in complaining about that feeling betrayed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that always surprises you. I think it surprises me. I think when I researched the Nazi period is that, you know, people did protest the Nazism all the time, but oftentimes their protests were, you know, that the regime wasn't radical enough or wasn't, um, you know, anti-Semitic enough, that kind of thing. I'd like to move on to chapter 16 and hear you mention um, an individual, Frank Lidget McDougall. And I really thought this was interesting because, you know, he proposes dealing with poverty and global inequality in a different way. So he's another kind of voice against insularity, isolationism, um, and has an alternative idea about how poverty and food insecurity can be combated. So maybe you can talk a little bit about him and then put it in the context of, of development. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Um, he's um, basically an Australian uh, agricultural expert who ends up um, advising the League of Nations economic and financial section in the 1930s. And he was originally a protectionist and a, you know, a supporter of the idea of um, empire shopping in the British Empire, which was kind of the British Empire's own version of um, the quest for autarky. It was that you know that you should only buy goods that are produced within the within the British Empire. Um, but he kind of changed his tune uh, in the con- context of the Great Depression, and he was one of the people who I think recognized very early on that. Um, that basically globalization had a, pub- a public relations problem um, and a, a public relations problem that was rooted in the reality that there were winners and losers and that um, that global trade in particular often exacerbated inequality, um, both within states domestically, but also globally between poor states and rich states. And his solution to that problem was essentially... <laughs> Keynes's solution, uh, which is that you had to make the benefits of globalization clear to people. And in order to do that, you had to give them more purchasing power. So he focused on consumers um, and not consumption in the sort of sense that we think of it, but the ability of consumers to purchase basic goods to kind of lift people out of poverty. And he argued that if you could, um, if you could tackle poverty globally, Um, if you could invest more in economic development, then you would be giving ordinary people and workers um, the purchasing power that they would need to participate in the global economy and to benefit from it. Um, And it was a really, I think, I think he had a lot of foresight because those, those were really um, ideas that became central to 
um, the post-war economic settlement in Bretton Woods and um, development projects and so on and so forth. So I'd like to discuss your conclusion now, which is entitled A New Era of World Cooperation. And in the conclusion, you note the years between 1939 and 1946, years of death and destruction on an unprecedented scale, were also years of planning. So can you talk a little bit about how the seeds for the post-war period were already being planted during the Second World War, in particular the seeds for renewed globalization? Yeah, that's right. So I think um, people understood the rise of fascism and the Great Depression um, being very much related during the Second World War. And the, you know, there was already this idea that after the Second World War, um, there was going to be a need to rebuild both national economies and the global economy in a way that was going to be um, more fair, more equitable, more, and of course, more stable. <laughs> um, so uh, during the Second World War, a lot of what, you know, the planners, the, uh, the, economic, the economists and politicians and policymakers were thinking about was when the war ended, assuming an allied victory, how would they reconstruct the global economy such that um, you would never have, again, have a meltdown um, on the scale of the Great Depression. And that was, um, and those were the ideas that really um, formed the basis of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which tried in its own way to reconcile participation in the global economy with giving states a bit more space <laughs> to have policies that would maintain full employment um, and also um, enable the creation of welfare states. And those things were, of course, linked to the idea that there needed to be some kind of security net in the case of um, economic downfall. Um, and also would give space to emerging economies to pursue um, their economic development to pursue industrialization, um, if necessary, through some amount of protection. So it was a kind of attempt to find this magical middle ground that would enable both globalization and uh, that would enable globalization, but on a, a more fair and sustainable basis. Right. And just create safety nets for people, right? Because you have the foundations of the NHS being laid and, and, and other welfare state systems, which were designed to protect, insulate people from dire poverty and material insecurity. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So my final question about the book is, obviously, reading it, there were so many parallels I could make. One of them was how certain leaders wanted to prevent emigration, right? They wanted people to stay at home, right? And I was thinking a lot about Viktor Orban and also obviously the fear of, of the internal enemies, but also external ones. And so uh, clearly a lot of parallels because I think even though our world is globalized, there's um, also leaders who are pushing up against that, if, if only for instrumental reasons. So what is the takeaway? And you know, do you think there are warnings here too? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's cause, there's both warnings and causes for optimism in the book. I think um, to the extent that the anti-globalism of the interwar period had many 
unintended consequences, including um, the massive reform of the global economy um, to make it more um, equitable and just, uh, you can kind of see the way, the extent to which there's no inevitable consequence of anti-globalism. It's not an inevitable uh, path toward fascism. Um, At the same time, I do think that the interwar story provides a really powerful warning that when the inequalities that are generated by globalization, both um, domestically and internationally, become extreme, that people will rise up against it and they'll use the tools of mass politics and populist politics to do that. And that's something we're seeing really powerfully today. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting as a historian to think about the extent to which in our own profession, for example, you know, the years between 1989 and, and, you know, up until very recently have been the age of transnational and global history. And I think that was um, very much, I was certainly a part of that and still am, but very much a reflection of a, of a, globalized moment and everybody was sort of looking for the predecessors of transnationalism and global globalism in history. Um, and now that I think that era is over, I think it ended in 2008. And, um, you know, I suspect historians, uh, themes and priorities will change with it. Um, I think we've already seen that with a kind of shift toward the history of capitalism and the environment, a kind of return of labor history. Um, so yeah, it's a warning, but also um, not uh, not a sentence, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, and I think that's one of the really important elements of this book, and I would say even crucial that it emphasizes alternative voices and visions and perspectives, and that there was during the interwar period, just as there is today. Uh, other options, right? Um, that insularity and deglobalism were choices, that fascism was not inevitable, um, and uh, you know that we can't necessarily draw this direct link from Versailles to Nazism. So I was really pleased to see that these alternative voices and visions were so well represented in this book. Um, okay, so we've come to the end of the interview. It was such a pleasure speaking with you about your fantastic book. Um, I really enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to assigning it in my classes. And so my final question for you is what are you currently working on? Oh goodness. Well, thank you so much for, um, you know, for this opportunity. It's been great talking to you and, and, um, thank you for the, for the fantastic questions. I'm currently trying to finish up a book that I'm co-writing with Peter Judson on um, the First World War and the Habsburg Empire. And we've been working on it for a long time, but I think we're we're close to the end. And it's sort of, I mean, it's synthetic, but also based on a lot of new research, trying to think about the empire as a whole rather than um, in its parts. Uh, uh, and we're really focused not just on the war years itself, but on kind of the greater war that, you know, ranging from the Balkan era to um, the early 1920s. The long First World War. The long First World War, exactly. Yeah. Well, great. We look forward to that. And again, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I've really enjoyed it. And I really, really enjoyed your book and highly, highly recommend it. Well, thank you so much again.